You, never, you don't know what you're going to get when you begin to ask the kids questions. But didn't she tell the truth? Are you soft and moldable? No. And that's a problem for us, isn't it? That's a problem that, that uh, our passage today does have something to tell us about. But first, I want to go back into my own history and, and uh, tell you a little bit out of my own background, my own story. Back in 1983, before the world began, back in 1983, before I was married, I lived in Spokane. I was in the Air Force. And there in Spokane, I discovered Moody Radio. The radio ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. I learned a lot from Moody Bible Institute. In fact, along the way, even when I was still in the Air Force, my first two years of Bible college came through the ministry of Moody Bible Institute. The first church that Julie and I found together when we were married in the first, and on our first year of marriage, we still lived in Spokane, and we, and we looked for a church together. And we, we heard of that church and then went and visited. We heard of it through Moody Radio, the radio station there in Spokane. Many books on my shelf have come out of Moody Publishing. God has given that from the founding of D.L. Moody so long ago, God has given that ministry a fantastic reach and made it a blessing around the world. And yet, recently there have been some troubles. There have been some conflicts at Moody Moody Bible Institute. I don't want to go into all the details of that, all the issues of it, but uh, suffice it to say that along the way, as decisions were being made and as, as choices and directions were being set, some of the staff, some of the faculty, some of the alumni were concerned about the directions that were being chosen, decisions being made, um, where emphasis was being put, where resources were being expended. And I suspect that some of those objections, concerns, or criticisms were not always made in the best of ways. There were probably arguments. There were probably assumptions about motives. There was probably anger expressed along the way. As well as I, 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 I know there are those that also express them a little more carefully and delicately and diligently. But probably the, the worst aspect of all of this was the apparent response for many years by the leadership out of the administration. It, it, it became evident along the way that the administration didn't want to hear from those who were in the trenches, so to speak, that they didn't want to hear other views or opinions, that this is what we're doing, and, and um, rather than learning from others' perspectives or even the criticism that was coming, they worked to shut it down. We don't want to hear that. And they created a culture where a critiquing, or you could call it whistleblowing, was not encouraged, in fact, was not allowed. Now, things tend to catch up with themselves sooner or later, and uh, such has been the case here, as an alumni, just this last week, I received an email from the chairman of the board of Moody Ministries. And I learned out of that email that three of their top leaders, the president of Moody, 
their chief operating officer, the provost of Moody. They have all resigned or been removed from those positions. Now, the saddest part of that is these are all good and godly leaders, and it, that didn't have to happen. They didn't have to leave those roles if instead there had been a willingness to consider the perspective of others. In a sense, to be softer to it, to be a little moldable by things that were different from one's own perspective. But humility, no matter where you are, whether you're at the top of a well-known worldwide organization or whether you're in the midst of your own life, humility is hard. Most of us don't appreciate criticism from others. We don't easily practice self-examination. We don't like the dentist poking around in our mouth. We don't like those doctor's appointments where the doctor might probe us in other places. Although I found as you get older, those things become more and more important. And yet, what's your response when the doctor pokes you here or there and you say, ouch? Do you run from the room and say, I'm not going to let that quack poke at me anymore? Or do you say, I wonder why that hurt like that? Seems like that shouldn't have hurt like that. I wonder why I had this reaction. Maybe, maybe the doctor wasn't as gentle as he could have been, but I wonder why I had the reaction that I did. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we resume a, a, a series through, through the book of, I said 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, a series in authentic discipleship. What does real discipleship look like? In chapter 10, Paul, Paul arrives again addressing some lingering conflicts. There seems, still seems to be some, some remainder of, some residue of lingering and affecting the church, ref, affecting still at least some of the believers. And so this, this topic, this conflict within church reemerges. Now, before we, we dive into that, I want to set the stage again and just remind you, because we took a break through the Christmas season uh, from this Authentic Discipleship series, we've learned a lot about what it is to, to follow our Lord together in this book. In chapter 1, we, we learned that, first of all, that authentic discipleship is life on life. It's being involved in the lives of one another. That, that this work that God is doing is a spiritual work, and he's doing it by his Spirit. That God even makes us ministers of his new covenant that is being accomplished. We're being transformed by the spirit of the living God within us. That as authentic disciples, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of pain, we lean toward God's future. And God's future, and as he's described it to us, he's also giving us a new identity. He's told us where home is. Not only for us to, to anticipate and to look forward to and long for, but to invite others in it. He's made us messengers of this gospel, this invitation to be able to live with God forever, to be reconciled with God. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation. That we've been reminded that we are called as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be different, but not distant from the people around us in chapter 6. We, we, um, we are 
reminded, and this uh, potential toward conflict came up again just briefly in chapter 7 when, he, when, when we reminded that we need to be willing to be corrected. That authentic disciples are learners. To be a disciple is to be a learner. And to be a learner means I might need to be corrected. I might need to adjust my perspective or my direction. Chapters 8 and 9, we learn that, that authentic discipleship is about stewardship of what I have as well as who I am. That my own life and service to God is a stewardship that he has given to me to manage in yielding it to him. There's a, there's a, there's a, a theme through here. You could pick up the different times that this idea of being soft, moldable, yielded continues to arise in this book. And now it comes up in chapter 10 where I want to suggest to you, first of all, there's some historical background, some stuff going on in terms of Paul's relationship with this particular church that we could spend a lot of time putting various details together and arrive at some conclusions about what is the setting in church that Paul is writing into. We could do that, but we're not going to. Because it's, it's somewhat ambiguous, it's somewhat vague, and I, I, I tend to be, I've learned along the way to be a little comfortable, to be comfortable with some ambiguity. That when something isn't clear in terms of the exact setting of circumstance in Scripture, I'm okay with that. And yet what principles from that, uh, maybe, maybe somebody else's conflict, I don't need to know all the details about. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. But there is something from Paul's response that I can learn from. And so, in the midst of conflict, and conflict that occurs among Christians, so conflict that occurs within church and within ministry, like at Moody, as I described in that opening, opening sad story, that I want to I advise you how to win. If conflict's going to come, don't you want to know how to win? How can I win this thing when conflict comes? And, and, and the thing about, for authentic discipleship, the thing about how to win when conflict comes in the church is that we surrender to win. Now, I chose those words in particular because surrender doesn't sound like winning. But in the Christian life where God is molding us, where God is shaping us, then, then we yield to him. The essence of the Christian life is yielding ourselves to God and his work in us for his glory. So authentic discipleship surrenders to win. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read the first six verses. We'll break it into three sections as we go. First of all, that this is a spiritual, that we, 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 we pray, think, speak, walk in the spirit rather than our natural tendency to respond naturally humanly, or as the passage says, to respond in the flesh. Follow along in, in your Bibles. If you're using the Bible in the, the, the church Bible in front of you, will be around page 968, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, I beg of you, that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And over the section, one of the things for me that I take away is, is that we need to, to pray, think, speak, walk. We engage. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of conflicts, we engage by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And by the flesh, I don't mean our, the sinful side of us. I mean our natural human tendency. My, my first default of how I'm going to respond. You see, Christianity... Christian maturity walks in a bold humility, not a bold take charge, I've got this, I'm right, it's my way, but a bold humility is what Paul is demonstrating here. As, as, as he describes in that, first, in that first handful of verses, you see a, there, there's a boldness there. He's not holding back, he's not shying back, he's not hemming and hawing, he's not hedging what he says. But he's also putting it in terms of humility. He, he, he urges them. He entreats them. He invites them rather than commands them. But he points out that this is a, 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 a spiritual battle that we don't respond in fleshly ways to it. That typically conflicts emerge, differences arise and we default to how we're going to respond and, and, and how, we, how we react. And, and especially, we, we have comfortable, comfortable ways that we respond in situations. And typically when you're under stress, you all the more default back to particular formed patterns that are deep within us. And so there, there's an intentionality to resist that urge and rather to say, or to actually to pause and say in prayer, Lord, what would you have me to do? Father, what should I hear here? Lord, help me to understand what is really being said and why is that being said instead of just reacting to it. That you can think of responding in the flesh versus responding in the spirit kind of like learning a new language. Some of you have perhaps learned a new language. There's a difference between learning a language, being able to converse in that language, even being able to, to, to hear and understand in that language, versus being fluent in that language. To be fluent in that language means you can, I'm told, I have not experienced this, I'm told that when you're really fluent in another language, you even think in that new language. Where normally you're learning a language and you think in your original language and then you translate in your head, how do I say that in this new way? But push comes to shove, when you're under pressure, you default and you think in your original language. And we tend to do that in our natural humanity. We will reflex and respond in natural ways, in human ways, in ways that are totally expected and make sense humanly, but may not reflect Christ. So, we pause, we pray that we would respond according to the Spirit because this is, this, issues in our lives always have a spiritual dimension. Remember in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle with flood, against flesh and blood but against principalities and power, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realm, that there is always a supernatural, there is also a spiritual realm to things. And so here, there's a spiritual realm that he mentions. There's a spiritual battle at play that if we simply treat it by human 
natural tactics, strategies, responses, we will easily not only miss what's really going on, but we can play right into the enemy's hands who's a student of human behavior and who will easily, happily use our human tendencies against us. Okay, so we're in a spiritual battle. How do we respond? We pray more. We pray first. Before you speak, before you intervene, before you take actions, before you come to conclusions or judgments or opinions, we take time to pray. That sounds basic. It sounds simple. It sounds like, okay, we're just going to pause for a minute and take a time out. No. We, God, would you, would you test my own thinking against your mind, against the mind of Christ? Lord, would you show me here what's really going on? Would you enlighten the understanding of my mind? That's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesians chapter 1. God will do that. That's a prayer that God has given us to pray for one another. We can pray for ourselves. That we would understand with godly wisdom what is really going on here. That we would actually let the word of God confront our own mind, confront our own thinking. One of the other things that this, this first paragraph shows us is that the spiritual battle that's going on is not necessarily the conflict I'm having with other people. The, the battle is in my mind. The battle is going on up here. The battle is a battle for my perspective. You see that language again. Look at, look at verse uh, 4. The weapons of warfare are not, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. All right, strongholds. We're going at war against strongholds. And boy, I just can see three new books being written in the spiritual warfare realm, taking down all kinds of strongholds. And they're normally out there. But look what Paul talks about here. The strongholds. What are those strongholds? Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, every high thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So my perceptions, my understanding, and the yielding of my will, that is the ground upon which this spiritual battle is being waged. Oftentimes, what I think is about somebody else is certainly also about me, at least in my response. Because every time I'm unjustly attacked, there's a response for me to grow in humility in how I respond to it. I do not understand still. I know the theology behind it. I know what has to come next and what the events that will follow in the, in the crucifixion of Christ had to happen, but I do not understand why Jesus receives Judas with a kiss and why he tells him what you must do, do quickly. Those are things I don't understand. And Jesus had a humility, even in the face of harm from others, that is beyond me. Let the word of God confront and correct our own wisdom, our understanding, our logic, our opinions. Christianity is a word-centered faith. It's a word-centered faith because the spiritual battle is in our own minds. It's, a, it's always truth versus a lie. My opinion doesn't matter so much. What does God think about this? You may shrug and say, well, how would I know what God thinks about it? Shame on us. God has shown us his mind. God has shown us his heart. It's here. 
He's given it to us in, in poem and song. He's given it to us in stories. He's given it to us in this, in this epistle kind of literature where it's laid out in logical form because our minds work in all kinds of different ways. But God has shown us something of his mind that we can know. And we ought to pursue it. So that instead of presuming to offer our own corrupt and insightless opinions, that it would exalt ourselves in our own mind and our attempts at times to lift ourselves up before others, we would instead yield and say, Lord, what would you show me here? What would you teach me here? How should I respond? What do I see that, Lord, I don't see? My clever arguments, my strategies, my ability. I'm actually Myself, I'm pretty quick on my feet. Verbally, I can, I, can, I can spar and tangle. But that typically doesn't help. It typically doesn't accomplish the purposes of God. My, target, my, my, my tangling and sparring with somebody. Uh, we, I, I learned about something several years ago that we tend, in the midst of a conflict, we tend to listen in order to refute we tend to listen to how the argument is being framed so that I can see how I should respond and where I can undercut the argument that is being presented to me. That's listening to refute instead of listening to understand. There's something that's being said, and the something that's being said may be completely wrong, at least as I understand things. But why is it being said? What else is there that even causes this whole thing to come up? And maybe the point isn't the thing, but why is it coming up? And maybe there's something I should learn from there. And if instead of listening to refute the argument, which may be simple, if I listen to understand what's really going on, we may enjoy a much deeper reconciliation and harmony together going forward. We respond to criticism with humility, even if it's unjust. What can I learn from this? It's interesting. Paul, Paul says in verse 6, he, he wraps up this, this, this section with, we're ready to punish every disobedience. Oh, goodness, everybody can find fault and point to something. He said, we're ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What is he telling the Corinthians? What is he telling us? Start with yourself. It's easy to see the faults in others. It's much harder to see the faults in ourselves. That's one of the things that, that, one of the reasons discipleship is life on life. Why? Because I need you. I need what, what you see in me that I don't see in myself. James says we need God's word as a mirror that we look into and see something about ourselves that we wouldn't see otherwise. And yet still I need accountability with others to help me walk in the light of that which I've seen. Pray, think, speak, walk in the spirit, not in our natural human fleshly tendencies. Secondly, submit yourselves to God's word. That's the thought we've already, we've already started down, that the, the battle in our mind is waged and corrected by hearing from and yielding to, like soft clay, yielding, submitting to God's word. Look at verse 7. He says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of, your, of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I'll not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, like these letters that we have here in our Bibles. 
His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech, of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are, they are without understanding. Submit yourselves to God's word. Now, in this, in this section, verse 7, as you were reading with me, follow me in your own Bible, some of you perhaps had a different translation like the, like the NIV and American Standard that reads differently from the ESV or from the New Living Translation. And the reason is, is, is there's, a, there's a, a particular thing about the Greek language in one form. When you're addressing uh, in the second person, mean I'm saying you rather than I or them, but I'm talking to you, that second person, in the second person plural, when I'm talking to all of you, not you individually, so second person plural, the form for a command, look at what is right before you, that's a command, look at it. Or you are looking only on the surface of things. That's a statement of fact, that's an indicative. So there's the command and there's a statement of fact. And the form for those two verbs in that second person plural in the Greek are identical. You can't tell them apart. Now, if you were listening to Paul, you could tell by his intonation which he means. Is it a command or is it a statement of fact? And normally within the context you can tell, but your Bible translators, we have wonderful Bibles in the English language. We have, a, we have an embarrassment in riches of the Bible ready at hand for us to listen to and yield to. But on occasion, the, the, the translators have had to make an interpretive decision. And that's why your Bible reads one way or another. And it doesn't change the sense of what, it changes the rhetorical style of how Paul says it. That's the only thing that changes. So it could be a matter of, look at the obvious fact. Or you are just looking at the surface, but look a little deeper. And that is, you rely on the fact that, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to take criticism from you. You know, I'm a Christian. I've got the Holy Spirit. Well, good for you. Paul says, by the way, I'm also a Christian. I also have the Holy Spirit. So shouldn't you also listen to me? That easily we might hide within ourselves. You might couch around it with, uh, my perspective is right. You know, the trouble with me is I think I'm right. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I'll take it by the laugh that you have. <laughs> the trouble with you is you think you're right. You don't believe me, just ask your spouse. Yeah, the trouble with you most of the time is you think you're right. They've got news for you, right? We, we default to our own perspective, and why wouldn't we? But according to recent scientific experience, or, 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 or recent scientific discoveries, the world does not revolve around me or you. Actually, there's more out there than merely my perspective. I've got something to learn. And my starting place is not my own perspective. My starting point is not what's obvious to me and everybody should get. The starting point, the controlling point, is what does God's word say. Paul's being a little sarcastic here in verse 10. Also back in verse 1. They say that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. He was sarcastic about that in verse 1. I, Paul, write to you. I urge you. I, you know, you remember me, the one who's, who's humble when face to face, but I'm bold to you and I'm away in writing letters. Now, the point you can take from both of those is God's word 
is often spoken very boldly to us, very graphically to us. I was talking with the seniors on Wednesday about Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, um, Isaiah the prophet goes, goes over the top in the language that he uses. He just gets as colorful and dramatic and, and as picturesque and as, and as emotional as he can possibly get for this single purpose. He wants his listeners to hear it. God desperately wants his people through the prophet Isaiah to hear what he's saying. And God will at some times from this book step on your toes. Be grateful for it. God's got something to say and we need to hear it. Let the word of God speak to you boldly. Yield yourself to it. Submit yourself to God's word. I suggested a couple weeks ago that let's start the year again, start reading again. And, and as you read, take notice. Look for God to say something that this is in the Bible, this must be just for me. Probably nobody else ever in history, this is just for me, at least right now. We might be pretty good at reading the Bible for stuff that's for others. That's a danger of a pastor, right? I'm supposed to read stuff in here for you. Oh, I need to read it for me. And jot down those things as you come across them. And then, how, Lord, how do I step into this? How do I not merely agree with it in my head, but how do I take a step forward in action that yields my body to God's truth? And there's something terribly powerful there. When I actually will yield my body, yield my time, yield my energy, give up my own desires in some way for the purpose of obeying God's word and submitting to it. Oh, that sets a pattern in my heart. That's a wonderful pattern, a wonderful change. Let the word of God confront our own wisdom and, and, and change our responses. Let's be, let's be yielded, soft, moldable to God's word. Take the Bible seriously. The key measure of that biblical authority, it's often used in control. It's often used wrong. It's often used in ways that are, have been talked about as spiritually abusive. You, know, you, shall not, you shall not bring a charge against God's anointed. A lot of Christian leaders would, 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 would hold to that. Doesn't the Bible say submit to your elders? Hebrews 13, absolutely. So who, do you, who are you to question us? And yet, and yet, there's something here where Jesus taught his, his disciples to not be like the, the Gentiles who lorded over one another. But the one of you who would be first must be last. The one who, of you who would lead must be a servant of all. God has turned the whole thing upside down. So that Paul's humble approach, his pleading in his letters is to use his apostolic authority, which is absolute, to use that authority for the building up of others, not the establishing of his own position. We tend as humans to compare ourselves to one another how we stack up, when the only comparison we ought to be making is, is that work that God is doing in shaping us more and more into the likeness of Christ, of which we all fall short. But we compare ourselves to one another. We measure ourselves by one another. That's why Facebook is so popular, right? You desperately need likes, and you collect them like little trophies. You're kind of like those trophies that when we're kids, we put them on our shelves, and we go back years later, and we're so embarrassed by all those that we collected 
Or maybe they're simply a reminder of happy memories from childhood. I hope so. But Facebook is a matter of I'm going to compare what I do to what other people get to do. And you're going to like it. And oh boy, aren't I special. Look at the fun thing I got to do at the fun place I got to go. Or look at the very clever thing that I said on Facebook. And everybody responded to it and they liked it. And they even shared it with somebody else. And maybe, oh man, if it all comes together, maybe it'll even go viral. And then I will be somebody. Imagine all the likes I could get then. We want likes, don't we? We want the, the approval, the affirmation of others. How many likes did you get? Look how many likes I got. How many followers do you have? <laughs> Look at Facebook is a great analogy of this comparing ourselves to one another and measuring ourselves by one another to a depressing end because we can never measure up. Julie and I, Got to visit her folks in San Diego again last week, and, and we got to enjoy the uh, lovely 70-degree weather there when it was, actually it was upper 70s there, when it was a little less than that here, I understand. But I didn't brag once on Facebook about it. I couldn't because we were going to be back here in just a week. You would have caught me at it. But we were sitting once in a restaurant, and, and Julie had the biggest burrito ever. I have never seen a burrito this big, right? I mean, the thing was huge. It fell off the plate on each side. Was, Julie, you got to take a picture of that, you know, post it online. Why? Who really cares how big Julie's burrito was? Were any of you going to eat the thing? None of us would be fed by that burrito, only her. In fact, she took part of it home. Did she share it with me? No. It was her burrito. She ate it herself. The crazy things we put on, look at my plate. The crazy things we put on Facebook and somebody else will say like or thumbs up or smiley emoji or something. And it doesn't matter at all. Measuring ourselves by one another, comparing ourselves by one another, doing the things that we do, seeking recognition is contrary to following Christ. The one who, who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond limits. We will, we will boast only with regard to the air of influence God has assigned us to reach even to you. We are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. But that really doesn't matter. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you will be enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without the boasting of work already done in another's areas of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who compends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul says in Galatians 6, I will glory in the cross, by which I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. It has no hold on me any longer. Don't glory in, in yourself and your accomplishments. Glory in others' successes and fruitfulness. Paul says, I long for you to grow and increase and that we could even have influence beyond you because of you and what God does among you. Don't expect to be honored 
recompensed, looked up to by others. We have a building over here. It's called Chapman Hall. Marvel Chapman, the man it's named for, never asked for a building to be named after him. It was named in honor of him after his unexpected death because he's the one that thought about it. He's the one that said, church, we got to have a children's education ministry because we have these children that we've got to teach God's words to. And so the church said, we need, to, we need to remember that. We need to remember what he told us. And so they named it Chapman Hall. But not, not because Pastor Chapman ex- expected to be honored. I will remember and I will rejoice that I am approved in Christ. Pastor Ryan last week talked about telling ourselves the gospel. I will remember that I am approved in Christ, that he, this is where my approval comes from. I will seek above all else the praise of my God rather than the approval of men, of the one who, who has said he will welcome me into his own presence with the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. His joy for us. Paul prays. In Ephesians, Paul prays that we would know what is the greatness of God's inheritance in the saints. Not our inheritance in him, the inheritance we receive, but his inheritance in us, that God is so thrilled that we are his. He is so thrilled to redeem you and bring you home. Your God delights in you. What do you need from Facebook? Right? What do I need in the eyes of anyone? One of my favorite prayers, one of my favorite prayers from the Psalms is a prayer of reflective introspection. It's a prayer of humility because it recognizes that God has work to do in me and I need that. I can't do it myself. I won't see it myself. It's a prayer of faith because it expresses my yielding to God, trusting him to do that work and trusting that God's way is better than my way. That prayer goes like this, out of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my mind. Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me, because I expect there are, ones I don't know about, and lead me in your everlasting way. Conflict and criticism will come, But we can trust ourselves to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among all the saints. We can trust ourselves to God's work in us. Authentic disciples surrender, yield in order to win. As D.L. Moody, the founder of that Moody Bible Institute and its ministries that I love, one of Moody's favorite quotes was the world has yet to see what God will do through the one who is wholly yielded to him. And Moody said more than one time through his life, by God's grace, I want to be that one. I want to be so yielded to God that I'd be amazed at what he would do through me. I want to be that one. I want to be simply this, more yielded to God that I am. I need to be. It needs to be giving more of myself and making it less about me. More of me, but less about me. 
Let's pray. Father, we do want to be used by you. Father, we recognize that you as our loving father, even as a father who's in the game and engaged and doing what he ought to be doing, a father is is watching over his children and knowing them and leading them and guiding them, shaping them and nurturing them. And Father, so you do with us. And you you desire to do that with our eyes upon you. That we would be merely guided by your gaze. That we would have our hearts so, so tender and yielding that we would easily turn in your directions. Father, would you do that within us? Father, we want to be as yielded ourselves as that which we present in this offering that we now receive. Lord, this is something out of what you've given to us that we entrust back to you. We want it to be used by you. But Lord, we also, again this morning, to the measure of faith that we can, again this morning, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Father, we again yield to you. Lord, if you would confront us by your word, do it. Lord, we just ask that you'd give us the insight to walk in it. Lord, in a conflict this week, in some criticism that might come to our ear, Lord, would you give us the grace to to hear what we can learn from it, that we would trust ourselves to be shaped by you and not need to defend ourselves and leaving that to you. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, that we present ourselves for your will, for your glory, even as this offering. In Jesus' name.